Alrighty, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to turn with me once again to Matthew chapter 15. We'll read verses 21 through the end. Um, you may recall from last week that I said that this is a controversial passage. Uh, it presents, Jesus says and does something here that, that is seen as scandalous. Um, and sure enough, I think Monday or Tuesday, whatever, early last week, like right after we talked about this, one of you sent me a link where there's a, there's a, there's a preacher uh, saying that essentially what we see on display here is Jesus's racism. And when he acknowledges the woman's faith and, and decides to go ahead and heal her after begrudging, um, that's, that's Jesus's way of repenting of his racism. Um, wrong. Wrong and wrong-er. Let's read this passage, and then we're going to get down to brass tacks, okay? All right. So the apostle, who would have been standing there while this happened, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decades later, writes thus. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and, and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy and lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. 
Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage, for your grace and mercy on display, for the truths it teaches us about the gospel, and for the truths it teaches us about the Christian life. Grant that we would have ears to hear, and grant that even now our hearts would turn to you in faith. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, last week we began this message and it was too long, so I concluded the first half and we're going to get to the second half. But by way of brief reminder, uh, last week we looked at this passage and the controversial nature of this first part, uh, this interaction with this Canaanite woman, and we, we stressed that people who think that all Jesus is doing here is stressing uh, Jewish priority in the gospel, well, well, they have the point that the Bible does indicate a certain Jewish priority, but, but they, miss, they miss out on the fact that Jesus has, over the course of his ministry, interacted many times, and we recounted many episodes from the gospels, where Jesus interacts with, indeed enters Gentile lands, and he doesn't bat an eye in any of those cases. He doesn't begrudge them. He doesn't pause. He doesn't hesitate. He just does it. And so claiming that this passage is some profound theological thing about the priority of Jews, uh, why would Jesus not seem to have a qualm in any other instance, only this one? Further, the, the rest of this chapter is spent in Gentile lands. That's why it's such a big deal uh, in verse, at the end of verse 20, uh, 31, when it says that they glorified the God of Israel. Here's a bunch of people having converted. And he stays and he is, the gospel of Mark specifies that his route down here goes through the land of Sidon, down into the Decapolis, Greek, pagan, the whole way. The feeding of the 4,000 was a pagan crowd that was fed. It wasn't Jews. And he doesn't re-enter the land of Israel until the very last word of this chapter when he crosses over, going back to the land, to the region of Magadan. So he's with Gentiles and pagans the whole time. Further, we talked about, we're, on, we're getting a little clue about what's going on here when Matthew stresses that she's a Canaanite woman, and that was an anachronism that no one in the first century was using that language. Mark refers to her the way she would have been referred to, that she was, she was a Syrophoenician woman. That by being a Syrophoenician woman, culturally, ethnically, she was Phoenician, and we talked about that great maritime peoples who uh, had spread around the Mediterranean basin, and their principal city was Carthage, which had been destroyed by the Romans after the Second Punic War. Uh, but because the Phoenicians were all over the place, they liked to identify themselves 
regionally, and so she was from the Roman province of Syria. So she's a Syro-Phoenician. But Mark, in referring to her as she would have been referred to in the first century, acknowledges that Matthew's not making something up because the Phoenician peoples were, if you traced them back, were a Semitic group related to the Canaanites that had occupied the land before. And so Matthew draws upon this and refers to her with the anachronistic term Canaanite for all the connotations that it brought up. And we talked about the flow of the book of Matthew. How the book it begins. The book begins by referring to D Jesus as the son of David. And we're all familiar with the Davidic covenant and the, the promise of a ruler from the, from the house and line of David. But the very next clause is after saying Jesus, the son of David, it's the son of Abraham. And what is the great promise to Abraham? That in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So that's brought up in the beginning of the gospel. And famously, Matthew takes the time to point out the pagan women in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew Two sees the Magi come from the east, and we celebrate that they were the first worshipers of, of Christ, these, these Gentiles. All throughout the Gospels, we see this opening orientation to the global mission of God, which finds its culmination, of course, in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Go! Make disciples of all nations. So the thrust of the gospel of Matthew starts out as Jesus, the Messiah of the Jews, with the culmination of a global mission. And then we stopped a moment and asked, given the culture in which the original disciples were reared and raised, a culture of profound ethnocentrism, how do we get them from this to being willing to gladly go and perhaps even die among the people that their culture has for centuries conditioned them to believe are filthy degenerates? How do you do that? Well, you do kind of what Jesus is doing here. You see, in this passage, you see Jesus making use of a, of a picture, of the picture of, of a dog at the tape in the house. And, and that's not a, a picture that would have resonated with Jews because they really didn't keep dogs as house pets because dogs were inherently unclean. Okay, a, a first century Jew would never have a dog in, on their lap they was certainly wouldn't let it lick their face. I mean, you, you kept a dog primarily. This is gross, but it was a, it, it, for trash cleanup. What do you do with all the residue food that you, I mean, you, you need stuff to eat it. So 
Jesus used this picture that would have been more common in a pagan household to stress a point about the Jewish view of themselves and others that resonated completely with all of the disciples because that's exactly how they were raised. That the pagans were dogs. We have many extant evidences that the first century rabbinical Jews, they thought of the Gentile world as dogs and other even nastier things. But how is this, how'd that come to be? I mean, what Jesus says here, does it resonate with the tone and the timbre of the Old Testament? Consider, for example, Exodus 12. The the Israelites haven't even made it out of Egypt yet. The Passover has not happened yet. And God is already giving legislation about who may participate in the Passover, not only now, but in subsequent generations. And he says this in Exodus 12. If a stranger shall, shall sojourn with you, and would keep the Passover to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the sojourner who sojourns among you. Does this passage make it sound like non-Israelites are dogs not welcome at the table? Isaiah 49 says this. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring them back, uh, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then Later in Isaiah 56, he says this, the Lord says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Does this sound like the tone of the Old Testament is that the Gentiles are dogs? Not worthy to be at the table? Zechariah 2. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, the the day of the Lord's appearing, and shall be my people. Does that sound like the Lord in the Old Testament views them as dogs? Of course not. So what happened is the problem of Israel largely was a problem of inclusion. Throughout most of their history, they celebrated diversity. They welcomed everybody and everything, and in so doing, 
they were enculturated into the cultural habits of the pagans and became pagans themselves. And so when the exile took place, what happened is they started reflecting on, on their history. Okay, you don't go through an ordeal as described by Jeremiah and not do some soul searching. And the Jews in exile did that soul searching and they said the great problem were all these pagans that we allowed to influence us. And so they really drilled down on their ethnic, cultural heritage. And so by the time they come out of the exile, even in Ezra and Nehemiah, you see this flowering ethnocentrism where, where they go beyond what the law of Moses said. The law of Moses only prohibited intermarriage with certain pagans. And they mandate divorce of every. They refuse to allow anybody to come near and help. Meanwhile, the prophets are preaching against the divorce. The people were budding in their nationalism. And then fast forward to the day of Christ, about 400 years, and it was calcified. And the disciples were reared in that. And they had to have that broken up, that hard ground had to be busted up for them to take the global mission of God out there. And so, the greatest way to change a person, the greatest way to change a person's core beliefs is to create cognitive and emotional dissonance. That is a fact the way that, that, that's not just a Bible truth. That's a people truth. The culture changes by us being confronted with happy, smiling, bad people. And that teaches us, hey, they're not really so bad because look, they're smiling. Look, they're nice. They're telling funny jokes on, this, on, on the TV. They're good. And that dissonance causes us to change. So here, you have these disciples. And this woman who is identified as a Canaanite. So from their cultural perspective, with that background, she is the absolute worst of the worst. And you would have absolutely no expectation of anything but utter degeneracy from her, right? What are the disciples and Jesus fleeing from? We're in his third year of ministry. And we, the previous section of this chapter stresses the outward formalism, the hypocrisy that shields a hard heart and that they were hiding behind their ritual purity an inner heart that was utterly defiled. And they were utterly unresponsive to what Jesus was saying to them. And Jesus said, it's, it's not the stuff out there that defiles, it's, it's the stuff from in here. The heart is what's the problem. And because the heart is the problem, 
We have all these outward problems, but, but stop thinking that with your formalism and externalism that, that you can somehow put on a pretense of piety as if that's what God is really all about and after. So the disciples who've been reared in a culture where the religious leaders truly are the creme de la creme, they really are the bee's knees, they are the best the brightest, the most promising. They shower, they bathe, they smell nice, they're not dirty. They're eloquent. Jesus talks about their eloquence when they, when they pray in the public square. They, these were not dummies. And, and they were pure. They, they didn't touch him. So everything they had been conditioned was to want to be like these people. But Jesus has just said, don't be like these people. These are the people that are surely close to God. That's what they were reared. And, and they've been getting a little dissonance. But, but now, fast forward, Jesus has walked them up to a pagan land. They're about to enter the pagan territory of Tyre and Sidon and and lo and behold, this woman comes out. And she's a pagan. She would have dressed like a pagan. She would have acted like a pagan. She would have smelled like a pagan. But yet, she's calling him Lord. Son of David. And she's falling on the ground begging for mercy. And, and even when Jesus issues what many of us would take to be a stinging rebuke or an insult or whatever, she, she immediately rolls and even the dogs get crumbs. And, and what do you think the disciples are thinking? Is, is this woman, I mean, th this, is what an, this is what a defiled person looks like and that's what a righteous person who's the righteous person here the people the leaders that were just chasing us out of town or or or, or this woman that i've been taught my whole childhood that is just terrible just the worst but here here she is she's one of two people in the gospel who who gets jesus's identity and no one told her i'm well, someone she heard and she perceived So Jesus is creating the dissonance by bringing up to their mind that this is a defiled woman, right? Right? Right. Then why is this? You see, and this is a profoundly important point for us, it is grace and not place that makes us believers. Think through the Old Testament. It is, it is possible to live in a prophet's family. Like Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. And yet live an impenitent, unbelieving life carried away by the desires of the world. And it's possible to dwell in the midst of superstition and pagan idolatry 
like the little maiden Naaman the Syrian's house and yet be a faithful witness for God and his Christ. And indeed, as they learn here, it is possible to dwell in the coasts of Tyre and Sidon and yet find their way to the kingdom of God. You see, this is a picture. What defiles a person? It's on the inside. And the inside then manifests itself in response to Christ principally. So for all their white clothes, for all their fine manners, for all their decent civilized talk, the religious leaders were wretches. And for all her barbarism, her repentance and faith indicate a soul hungry for the things of God. But principally, you want to know why this woman is even in the Bible? Jesus, Jesus says to her that it's not right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Ouch! Just about every one of us would have, oh, how dare he? Oh, well, fine. <laughs> Forget you then. And we'd walk away. And if that's what had happened, you're right. This, this passage wouldn't even be in the Bible. But what does she say? Her first word is yes. The second word is Lord. Yes, Lord. You, you got to understand right here, this is, this is the punchline. The fundamental thing that makes it possible for us to receive grace is acknowledging the Lord's verdict about us and our situation. And what is the Lord's verdict? That we are dead. That we are enemies of God by nature, objects of wrath. That every inclination of our heart from infancy is to do evil and only that. And, and how offensive is that? Oh, how dare he? Look at all the good these worldlings do. And they refuse to acknowledge the verdict of God. It's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They refused to hear they refused to hear that God was more concerned about the inside. They refused to hear that lips and actions weren't enough, but heart and affections matter most. And so, this passage is a profound illustration that receiving grace means acknowledging the Lord's verdict on you. And the fact of the matter is we are none of us worthy. Who can say that they are worthy? No one. And she had the eyes and the ears and the heart 
to humble herself before the king of kings and say, yes, Lord, but even a dog like me can get some crumbs. Because even as she's saying, yes, I agree with your assessment and I agree that I'm not worthy. What is she secondarily saying in the rest of what her response is? She's saying, one, I may not be the center of your plan. I may not be the reason you came. I may not be number one in your mind. But you are so big. And you are so good. And you are so able that whatever residual grace you give me will not in any way detract from whatever it is that is your main purpose, Jesus. Do you have an assessment of self like that? Do you acknowledge the bigness of Jesus and of his sufficiency to accomplish all he will? And yet see your own needs as, while insignificant in comparison to the whole, nonetheless, Jesus is capable because of his supreme power and ability and goodness. So she's making a Christological statement as well as a self-statement that she is not worthy, but he's able. And then this passage provides us another opportunity to reflect upon a reality concerning Christian life, and that is things don't always come quick and easy. You might get this, the idea based upon what Jesus does most of the time in the Gospels, that anytime someone comes to Jesus, the healing, the relief is immediate. And it can be kind of odd that Jesus would tell us parables like of the persistent widow. Do you know the parable where, 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 the, where the woman is needing relief and she goes to the judge and the judge won't hear her. He's too busy. He's got other things. And, and Jesus is telling this parable about the need to be persistent in prayer. But, but, but why persistence in prayer? Jesus, you heal everybody like, like that. All they got to do is come and stand around and boom, boom, boom. So where's my miracle? Or consider the man born blind. And when... The leaders ask him, who sinned this man or his parents before him that he was born blind? And Jesus says, says no, no one sinned. He was born blind that, that in this moment God would be glorified in his healing. And so the, that begs the question, how many times do you think that man's parents, as soon as they noticed as a little infant that he was blind, that he was not responding to their, to their faces, to their movements. How many times do you think this man had been prayed over? Myriads. And yet the answer was always a seeming no, wasn't it? Until one day, the shadow of the man Jesus falls over him. This woman is a reminder to be zealous 
and persistent in prayer, the Lord honors in his time and in his way, but he honors faithfulness. It's also a reminder to reflect and wonder that she, this, this Syrophoenician woman living in pagan lands, had the spiritual acuity that surpassed the religious leader. She correctly identifies Jesus. I mean, she's aware not only of who Jesus is, but she's aware of, of, of Jewish messianic expectations. I mean, she has spiritual acuity. I wonder how much of that was born of the fact that her daughter was in desperate straits and that as a pagan, she would have undoubtedly gone to the various cult priests, the various sorcerers. They would have tried various things, but eventually she found her way to Christ. This demon had not afflicted her daughter. Chances are good that she would have lived and died in obscurity as a pagan. What sufferings and terrible things have you gone through? That yet, for as bad as they were, for as bad as they are, they bring you to Jesus. As Spurgeon said, learn to cherish the wave that crashes you upon the rock of Christ. It's a beautiful providence when God allows something that to our senses seems unpleasant, yet nonetheless takes us from the grip of idolatry and brings us into his arms. And so having then made his point, our Lord does miracle upon miracle. And these people respond in a way that, that many of the Jewish towns had failed to. He feeds them because he has compassion upon them. And, and in the, all of this, he's showing the disciples what it's like. And he's broadening their perspectives so that they will be readier to take the gospel to the world. Now for us, we are the Gentiles. We are those who have been the beneficiaries of great missional efforts to take the gospel around the world. We, we are. So what do we do with it? Do we sit on it? Or do we keep it going? The same hope that has found us, that we have discovered and that we cling to, there's more than enough goodness and grace in Jesus that we can have ours and still share it. He's big enough. So we take the gospel around the world even further. And even here in our area, 
So many are living and dying in darkness. They need it. Do you view them as disgusting wretches? Or do you view them as people in the image of God who desperately need Jesus? So, this woman teaches us a lot. And it points to a Savior who is capable of meeting every need. But you must acknowledge his verdict of you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this word. We thank you for what you've done in history. We thank you for how you have indeed included the Gentiles in your plan and how you have indeed in Christ made us one person. Thank you. We ask that we would be faithful, that we wouldn't seek to hog your word, but rather having it for ourselves that we would pass it along. Grant that all the elect would be saved, everyone for whom Christ died. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.